Thanks for tuning in to the PLR podcast. We're here where we seek to create a network of leftists in the state of Rhode Island so that one day we can win political power as a group of leftists. Uh, from the Turtle Show, I'm Alex, and as always, I'm here with Andy. Hello. And our newest host, Evan. Hello. Follow us on Instagram at PLRPod. Subscribe to our podcast wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Uh, today's episode, I think, is going to be really fun for everyone. Our first guest, we have uh, Caroline, who runs Compassion Kitchen, PVD. She's going to talk to us about harm reduction and mutual aid, and... So I hope that you enjoy listening to Caroline. But first, we want to do a general discussion about budgets. 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 Everyone's favorite. I thought it would be a good idea to start this conversation with a general overview of what budgets are and where they come from, particularly deficits, which is what Rhode Island is working with right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it all started with the original boomer, Ronald Reagan. You all heard that name? <laughs> the OGB. The OG boomer. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners have heard of the idea of trickle-down economics before. Ew. Idea um, or joke. This was the idea that market trading in general uh, should be free from as many regulations, burdensome uh, federal oversight as possible. So kind of giving the capitalists as much leeway to do what they have to do. And the idea was that the consequences of this free market system would be met by the state. So uh, impoverishment, for example, social welfare, uh, infrastructure problems, environmental problems that came out of these unregulated capital enterprises would be covered by the state and the federal government. They called them safety nets. But we know as leftists that that actually didn't happen. Uh, What actually happened was what's known as the race to the bottom in the 1980s, where states had to lower the working wage and the tax rate in order to curb the flight of these companies out of the United States, because that deregulation meant that corporations or businesses figured out that they could make more profit by exporting their business abroad uh, and they wouldn't be taxed as much as they would be in the United States. So what happened is states like Rhode Island or Massachusetts or wherever you are, uh, in order to keep those businesses within the state, they would uh, keep the minimum wage low and they would increase the tax rate on workers while lowering the tax rate on corporations. And so the, the trickle-down effect that was supposed to happen never came about. Mm-hmm. Which leads us to the notion of austerity budgets, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard about these days. This is the the neoliberal spending uh, plan or anti-plan, I guess. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that we shouldn't be spending too much. Which if you think about it, if you think about that history that I just laid out, austerity budgets don't make any sense, right? Because the state and the federal government were supposed to be provide those safety nets of social spending, of infrastructure spending, but it never turned out that way. So in general, we know that since the 1980s, the power of capital over workers has just monumentally increased. Um, and the, the, these businesses didn't want excessive regulations. 
brought on by society's increasing demands on these businesses. And so instead of protecting the social sphere, the state chose to protect the businesses, to try to get them to stay within the states that they came from. That leads us to Rhode Island. Rhode Island uh, is suffering from the same budget deficits that this whole process came out of. Before the 1980s, before trickle-down economics, states didn't have deficits. It was a new thing that was recently created, kind of recent, depends on how old you are, I guess, hmm. uh, in the 1980s. Um, and COVID-19 has increased those problems exponentially. Of course, yeah. Uh, there's, uh, as we'll talk about in these budget conversations, there's increases in places where it makes sense and definitely where it doesn't make sense. I think Sam, um, I forget his last name, from Uprise RI, had a great article about this in the opinion section of uh, the Providence Journal, um, detailing how the austerity budget was kind of like shot down and how there hasn't been a, a, a tax hike on the rich or the upper earners. You mean how like we're responding to austerity budgets? Right, right, right. It's like a broader recognition that austerity means nothing, right? Basically. Uh, in July, the state of Rhode Island slashed funding for what was called the Distressed Communities Relief Fund, slashed that in half. Uh, and to make matters worse, the, the federal government has provided every state with federal funding for COVID relief, but the stipulation is that that relief has to be used for COVID-related expenses. Yep. So that's why that, that's why that funding, the, the governor was able to use that for unemployment benefit increases, but when it comes to actual community benefits, there's no leeway, there's no federal funding to expand those or to have them cover the deficit of Rhode Island. The governor's alternative seems to be further cuts to social spending rather than cuts to her own office or the legislature or... No, she actually uh, wanted to raise um, the amount of money for her own office, as we'll get to in the budget later on. And the, the, the contradiction of this whole thing has been pointed out by members of uh, Reclaim RI. David Morales, uh, Leona Felix, and Megan Kilman are, two, are three representatives that have called out, um, their House of Representative members who have called out the governor on her unwillingness to use the, the COVID budget for um, social benefit. So I thought we would spend this episode going over some of these strange budget plans that the state of Rhode Island has, beginning with that dumb-ass camera that they put over Crook Bridge. <laughs> uh, I wonder how much money it costs them to protect that decrepit old bridge where Kids did nothing but jump off and smoke. I mean, that sounds like a, a threat to society right there. I think there should be a camera there. We shouldn't be, you know. Who's watching that camera? I know. That must be so boring. <laughs> Worst show ever. I want that job. Um, so, yeah, we have some numbers on uh, the police, uh, public safety increases. We have some numbers on, um, on the governor's budget. And in general... A lot of the protests that are coming out from Reclaim RI or other organizations are related to the increases in public safety, or that is the police department, and I should add uh, corrections as well. They want more uh, corrections officers in, in the state prisons <clears throat> and more police officers. Yeah, so safety has air quotes around it when we say it. 
Yeah, I mean, Andy, what were some of the um, some of the increases, some of the expenditures that were on the, the list? All right, so what I have in front of me here is a uh, piece of paper that says uh, some of the things that they are um, buying. So first off, we have the purchase of tasers. The governor recommends an increase of $54,900 in general revenue to fund the start of a three-year schedule to purchase tasers for the Capitol Police and Sheriffs. The tasers will provide a less-than-lethal force option for law enforcement officers. This is kind of like a liberal win point. Um, the answer is for them um, to tase people instead of uh, modify the way that we interact with the police, which is what I think we all want is a change to the um, the society, or not society. Uh, we want them gone. We want them gone, <laughs> yeah. But the relationship is flawed, and the answer isn't throwing money at tasers. The answer is fixing the relationship. What's wrong with the tasers the that they already have is my question. I don't know if they have tasers. You remember, like, growing up and you wanted, like, next best level of whatever thing you had and your parents were like no not until we have that at home yeah not until you wear out the <laughs> we one have you already tasers have. at home yeah not tasers i hope your parents didn't have tasers okay. well you could always do what joe biden says and just shoot him in the leg instead right oh my God. i mean maybe that's the fucking answer um yeah that's not the answer people don't no don't, no. Shoot, <laughs> don't shoot anyone in the leg yeah um but, i mean the same thing applies to the the increasing uh, or the the budget allocation given to radios, the receivers. Yeah, so the radios, uh, I don't have that in front of me, but it was five thousand like four hundred something dollars per radio. Yeah. Um, there's like five hundred and seventy five of them, I think, that they were purchasing, yeah. and uh, it's a fuck, it's a fuck ton of money, and they have radios now. I don't know why they need all of these new radios at the same time. It's a huge fucking chunk of cash, and also. They also want um, an increase of police vehicles where they want, I think it was 15. Yeah, I don't get that. It was 15 new police cruisers, 10 police under uh, undercover cars, and then there was one prison bus and I think another uh, vehicle. It might have been like one of those fucking vans they throw people into, mm, like the drunk the vans. The paddy wagon. There you go. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. What a cute name for something so terrible. <laughs> Seriously. Um, it's not needed. I don't think it's fucking needed. I think this is just cops having, uh, an excess of cash and just being like, Hey, we could use this. We could use that. I think it's just uh, total bullshit. And, uh, I see enough cop cars when I'm driving around. I don't think I want to see 25 more of them on the fucking street. Yeah. Are they hiring more people? Is that why they need more stuff? I think they are hiring more, uh, Ew. officers and that kind of connects us over to, um, the barracks that they're going to be building. Yeah. What's uh, that? Was a barrack? That's a state police barracks, though. But what? What is that? It's where they're like stationed. That's where they live. Not where they live, but where they. So do you know how firemen have trained. like a firehouse? Yeah. Where they all? It's kind of like the same thing for police. Oh, it's a clubhouse. Kind of like yeah. Cop clubhouse. Aww, gross. It's where they keep their fucking firearms, you know, and their fucking trophies that they take off citizens. Yo, what do you think it smells like in there? Old Spice. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, and uh, that's gonna be thirty-five million dollars. Yeah, I'm sorry. Can you say that number uh, again? The governor recommends thirty-five million. Thirty-five million. Yeah, to construct new barracks in the southern part of the state. Thirty-five. To million. be clear, there is a barracks there already, but the governor's plan is to 
close that barracks and open the new one in the middle of a fucking pandemic. We could use $35 million. Yeah, where else could we use that money? Hmm. I think that the key, the, 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 the key context here is that we're in the middle of a pandemic. And so these increases and in these, these investing in new tasers and new radios and new cars, it's not abnormal. It happens every year. The police department or public safety in general gets allocated more millions. But the problem is that we're in the middle of a pandemic right now where there are communities who haven't received any federal funding or any relief really um, that are in need right now. And I think that that's the, the key context here. And it's not just the police department too. The, the, the legislator, the, the governor has recommended an increase in the cost of the legislator and also more money to her own office. So it's just curious that now is seen as the the good time to continue funding these bodies. Yeah, I mean, people at this point have to choose between going to work and risking, like, dying or staying home with no paycheck and dying. <laughs> like, how, like, what, how do they sleep at night? I'm just wondering for a friend. Like, how can you justify asking for more freaking barracks, like a build a better clubhouse when there are people suffering? Build what a, is that? Build a better clubhouse sounds like a nightmarish kids like playground in the mall. I don't know. It sounds like kind of a cute TV show that I would watch. <laughs> like a Nickelodeon? If it was drag queens, I would so watch it. <laughs> well, this is a shadow of <gasps> like much bigger problems that exist in society. You know, we shouldn't have to worry about where we're going to sleep at night about if we can afford food about we have if we have health care these are things that should have already been met um yeah you know so we should this shouldn't even that shouldn't even be part of the conversation unfortunately now there was an article that uh you guys were talking about before we started oh that's a providence journal article um that's about how the pandemic and the and the protests have driven up uh, the overtime spending for the police. So that's another reason why they have to allocate more money to it, right? To yeah. the police department is because um, protests, essentially. It says the overtime costs could outpace the current budget forecast by more than $1 million because since July 1st, police overtime costs have already reached about $2.5 million and could reach 4.5 or $5 million. I think this is like, the response to this is best summed up by that 16 year old in that article representing, uh, who was it, the general- uh, Gen Z we want to live. Yeah, so do you, do you have the quote in front of you of what he, uh-huh. what they said? This young person who uh, is a high school student, which like whoop whoop for yeah. the high school kids, um, Shut up, Gen Z. Gen Z, we want to live. Follow them on the internet. They organized part of, well, they organized a bunch of protests. Um, I went to one of them. But uh, so, uh, they say, when we talk about defunding and reinvesting, that's exactly what we're looking at. Um, and this person is the executive director of Gen Z, we want to live. Their name is Jayshel Shank. Um, they say, we're looking at the overstaffing they're utilizing. When you go to a protest, you'll see the number of police officers is excessive. We don't need 50 police officers for one protest. Um, 
person said she's always focused on the safety at protests, um, but the only thing police need to do is provide traffic control. She said they're making money off of us protesting against them. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And another thing, like, if the, the governor's plan they just announced today is to close down for two weeks, mm. yep. do the police get a cut in their pay? If those two weeks, there's a decreased amount of people on the street. Why, why do there need to be more, just as many cops as there are out? Yeah, it's like one of those, like, uh, it's like a circular, it's a strange kind of relationship. You know, the way that the government sees this police response is that it's necessary for these protests and they need to put money into it to keep protests in line. Um, whereas things get escalated because of the police presence there. And because people that are protesting feel cornered. Yeah. And what's that term when they block uh, protesters in into a certain area? <laughs> They're kettling. Kettling. Kettling, right? Yeah. It's tea like... Teabagging? No, that's not... <laughs> not teabagging. <laughs> Something else. Fucking shit would go down if cops were teabagging people. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, no, kettling. So, yeah, like, it's this fucked up relationship that when looked at through the eyes of the government, it causes them to throw more money at it in the wrong fucking direction. And um, it needs to be looked at in a different manner um, for them yeah. to completely understand it. It seems like cyclical. It like is. One thing feeds the other one. Yeah, and... if they don't want protesters protesting the police, what do you do? Right. And this, <laughs> and, and to like bring Get it, rid bring it around full circle, in my mind, this is another reason why austerity budgets don't work in practice because it leads to these cyclical patterns of spending and then reserving much needed finance, much needed capital from communities that actually need it, more spending. And so states are just perpetually in deficit now without um, any, any hope of bailing themselves out of it. And, and, you know, it is true that those companies that used to exist in Rhode Island are disappearing. But again, the, the, the context for me here is the pandemic. I think that all of this stuff in, in the world of the pandemic just makes those austerity budgets even more glaringly flawed. Well, businesses are leaving. Uh, I work for a manufacturing plant and they're moving to Costa Rica. Um, they can't afford to keep manufacturing in Massachusetts. Bro, you should go with them. Actually, I do have the opportunity to go and train people in Costa Rica. I might take it. Uh, that's going to be like the most bittersweet thing possible because uh, people are losing their jobs and that would be me going to vacation to Costa Rica. So that, you know, I don't know how I'd feel about that. Two things about Costa Rica, little factoids that I know. One, Costa Rica doesn't have a military. They have a police force which acts as a militia if it's called. If it's oh boy. What could go wrong? You mean kind of like Germany, right? They don't have a military. They have like a reaction force or a defense force. Yeah. They're, their police is essentially their military. And then also, Costa Rica just announced, I read this week, that by, I think, 2028, or maybe even sooner, they're planning on being 100% fossil fuel free. Ooh. So, hey, man, Costa Rica is looking pretty good. Right? <laughs> yeah, too bad coronavirus is happening all around the world and That's true. all that other shit. But yeah, so companies are definitely leaving. Um, they were going to shut the whole plant down. Uh, they're only shutting down parts of it, but... Uh, yeah. This could get into like a, an entire like Marxist thing about how you said that people would be le like capitalists are constantly looking for an increase to the amount of um, exchange value 
for the things that they're selling. And the best way to do that is to minimize labor cost and yeah. by automation and by cheap labor, they're able to do that in other parts of the world instead of you know where the native population is. Yeah, export the business out to Correct. increase profits. Whether it's abroad or or in, in a different part of the U.S. even. Yeah, in Rhode Island's case, it's I think a lot of companies going to other parts of the United States. It has like Rhode Island has that robust seafood industry, but so does Massachusetts and Maine and any other coastal state really. You know, so it doesn't doesn't bail them out of the deficit that they're in. Instead, we get uh, the governor in calling for more funding to her own office for 2021 and cuts to social spending which don't make sense at all great job gina fantastic like i don't want her job or anything and i can't say that i would do better but how can anybody focus on anything other than like people are dying <laughs> people are dying black and brown people especially are dying like the demands are in the name of that that high school organization gen z we want to live these teenagers had to found an organization called we want to live how sad is that yeah that's a good point the the names themselves are becoming more and more cryptic like just sad that's not know. cryptic that's up front it's straight up that's what yeah. i like about it well you know what's fucked up is that people can listen to a cry like that and they can turn around and say fuck those people that's true. Yeah. Uh, or contribute towards a $2 million bail fund. Oh, my God. Oof. To get that kid out. Yeah. Right, but people aren't going to contribute to Jamal Gonzalez's uh, medical bills. Yeah, well, I don't know. It, sound, it sounds really fucking bleak when I say it, but, like, I feel like... They'll look at Jamal and be like, you're some kind of criminal. You were running from the police. Whereas I was just in a coma because I was sick. Yeah. But do you, but do you think that Rhode Island healthcare like, can um, be prejudiced like that? Hell yeah. Or they just cover Are you kidding everyone, me? Or they just cover everyone like that is no. part no, no, of that? No, 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 no. Healthcare is like one of the most prejudiced bodies and especially like poor black and brown people are getting the worst health care mm -hmm. don't even get me started on like trans black and brown people let's talk now about municipal budget because it's different than the state of rhode island and there was a meeting recently about the municipal budget do you do you have the details about that Evan? i'll have a ton of details about it um it was a there was a city council finance committee hearing um, in June, and some people showed up. I mean, it was in June, so it was still at one part of the of one height of this pandemic. We tuned into it on Zoom. We were one of the like 153 people, um, not including the 47 people who testified there in person. So. This public testimony took almost nine hours, nine hours, consecutive hours of public testimony that encouraged some uh, of the elected officials uh, to take a second look at things, but has largely been ignored after 200 constituents uh, chimed in to say, yo, 
defund the police. They do continue it. to do that too. If you look at, I mean, they're of of course they they've been doing their meetings virtually via Zoom. The municipal council has, uh, and they're. I'm I'm pretty sure with every public meeting, there's a lot of people that chime in to talk about how fucked up the funding allocation is in the city. Oh yeah. And you can go on publicly. You can you can just type into to whatever your search bar is, uh, city of Providence funding, and you can see the long list of uh, month by month where funding is given. And usually it shows it in groups. So for example, there'll be ten funding. Uh, bars in a row that will say public safety that's to the police and there's things on there that are like you know really questionable there's we don't know there was one that was like painting supplies thirty two thousand dollars it was like i wonder what those painting supplies were i was saying like i could paint the police department for five thousand <laughs> just give it to me just buy the paint and let me do it yeah i don't know that's really vague though you know i think a lot of like like we said, we're not budget specialists. We're just good looking speculators. But like a lot of the stuff on the budget isn't explained very well. It's like, what yeah. does that mean? Supplies, painting supplies. There's something that says like house cleaning supplies. I'm like, what is that? Paper towel, like brand name paper towels yeah. or like another one what is was that? another one of the spendings of public safety on that is the for the K nine unit. And there's two sections for the K nine unit. One of them is Canine supplies, it was something like, it was over $20,000 for canine supplies. And another one was care for the canine unit, and that was like $32,000. And I'm saying like kibbles and bits doesn't cost that much money. And that point number one, point number two, uh, why do we need canine units in general? Well, we don't. Yeah. Nobody fucking needs it. So... I mean, it's it's not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things when you're talking about like millions, but you combine that to fifty thousand dollars going to the canine unit of the Providence Police Department, while as Evan said, people are dying during the pandemic. It just really makes you think. We'll be back after this brief musical interlude by the Providence-based band Fox Point. If you have music you want us to play, feel free to email it to us at plrpodcast1 at gmail.com, and we'll do our best. Thanks.
Our first guest, our very first guest for the PLR podcast is Caroline of Compassion Kitchen. And she's here with us live, but not live with you. Um, and I just wanted to start off this interview with a really broad question of tell us what Compassion Kitchen is. Yeah, sure. Um, Compassion Kitchen is a very small, uh, very grassroots. Um, I hesitate to even call it an organization because it's really just, you know, me hanging out in my kitchen and a few of my friends. But um, it is a an outreach organization that provides um, food and survival supplies and hygiene supplies and harm reduction uh, to the folks of Providence. So where did you get the idea to do this? Um, I actually, I didn't know very much about any of this and I didn't know about harm reduction um, until um, a mutual friend of all of ours um, had moved out to Oakland um, and started working with an organization called uh, Punks with Lunch. Uh, they are super cool, um, much bigger than I am, but also, you know, a grassroots org uh, doing um, food security and harm reduction out in Oakland. And uh, someone who works with them, her name is Bopa, she runs um, a group called Rogers and Rosewaters, out, Rogers and Rosewater out in Oakland. And um, our friend would tell us, our friend Tommy would tell us about about the stuff that she was doing. And, you know, he was like, yeah, she started this really cool, you know, one woman mobile soup kitchen. And he would just, you know, kind of kind of go on and on about how cool she was. And I was like, that is so amazing. I'm so stoked on that. You know, how how did she do that? Like, I want to know everything. And he was like, why don't you ask her yourself? And I ended up actually interviewing uh, Boba for um, Alex's zine. Um, punks around and uh, she was just great she she told me kind of how she how she got into it and essentially the story was that she saw a need and she met it and um, she said you know that she came up with the idea and she gave herself two weeks and that was her that was her hard deadline and she was like in two weeks I'm gonna start a nonprofit and she just started cooking meals for people and it, it just kind of grew from there and her her enthusiasm and her kind of willingness to to fuck up was was really inspiring to me, and uh, I was like, I'm gonna do that, and so I did, and here we are. You did it, and you did more too, because she wasn't doing a harm reduction as far as drug supplies, like needles and and pipes and stuff like that, was she? No, no, uh, Boba does not do doesn't do harm reduction as far as I know. Um, Punks with lunch but, does. Uh, she does she does meals and she does um, a lot of like um, survival supplies and she does like dog food and things like that for for the people oh, okay. in, Oakland, uh, in different camps out in Oakland. Um, that the harm reduction thing actually came because um, I would be out there and I would be you know just talking to people and you know, telling them, you know, I have this, I have that. I think it started with just food and menstrual products is what I, is what I started with. Um, and uh, people would ask me, they'd be like, oh, do you have pens? Do you have sharps? And I was like, what is that? Um, and they were like needles and people, people needed um, sterile syringes. And I was like, well, I don't have that, but I can definitely get that. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of, I started passing out um, little packages of, of insulin syringes and then it came to be that people would ask me for, um, they'd be like, oh, I have, you know, used syringes. Can you take these from me? And I would say, 
oh, no, I can't. I don't have a sharps container. So next time I'd go out, I'd have a sharps container and I would, you know, be able to collect syringes from people and, you know, so on and so forth. And I got interested in harm reduction and um, and started kind of expanding the the supplies that I that I carry with me. So this started from very meager beginnings for you, huh? Yeah, I mean, we're still pretty meager, <laughs> just not as meager as uh, as I used to be, I guess. So, Caroline, for the people listening who may not know, can you tell us more about what harm reduction is and why it's important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, harm reduction, you know, as, as it sounds, is the reduction of harm. So, um, in the in the sort of capital H, capital R um, concept of it, it is you know reducing harm. Uh, that could potentially be done um, by things that people are going to be doing anyway. So um, in this case, it would be uh, drug usage. So, you know, people are, if people are going to use drugs, they're going to use drugs and uh, not having access to sterile supplies is not going to stop them necessarily from using drugs. Uh, What it's going to do is kind of push them into a corner and, you know, they'll be using, you know, somebody else's syringes or syringes that they've used, you know, 20 times already, or they'll be using, you know, water that maybe isn't the cleanest water to to mix the drugs, or um, they'll be, you know, sharing pipes or, you know, any number of things uh, that could that could potentially result in, in harm to them. So harm reduction is really just, you know, taking taking those things that they're doing and, you know, getting an understanding of them and then offering ways uh, to to reduce or mitigate any any harmful or, or bad outcomes that they could have. So um, through harm reduction, we are, you know, if we're taking uh, injectables, for instance, um, supplying people with not only sterile syringes, but um, safe ways to actually inject drugs. So my injection kits include all kinds of things like sterile saline bullets, um, alcohol prep pads, triple antibiotic, um, band-aids, filters, um, individual cookers uh, for when you're cooking the drugs, um, all kinds of things, because all of those things can um, carry disease. Um, So there's a lot of communicable diseases, obviously, that go into 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 drug use if you're if you're sharing equipment um so in in that sense you're you're essentially taking something that someone is already going to be doing and uh kind of making it a little bit safer in the in the best way that you can in the uh thank you that's a that that was a really full answer um in the the last segment that we just did there's the rhode island hope initiative which is this police kind of centered initiative to combat the opiate epidemic in Rhode Island. And I'm just wondering, in your opinion, why you think harm reduction and outreach is a better solution to uh, opiate problems in the state or in the city? Well, what is the, like, what is their, when you say police, like, what do you... So what it stands for is the the, uh, Heroin Opiate Prevention Effort Initiative. And what it basically is, is a way to throw money at the police to give them more ability to investigate uh, people that deal uh, deal drugs and are the source of the drugs in our community. So it's like a dealer-centric kind of hunter-killer kind of um, organization, which I'm sure that you have an opinion about that. 
I do. Well, tell us. <laughs> so uh, that sounds lame to me. Um, I would definitely have to look a little bit more into it to, you know, give you a better thought out answer. But I don't really think uh, the police should be involved in, you know, I definitely don't think the police should be involved in harm reduction. Um, this doesn't really sound like it's even related to harm reduction. Um, it sounds, you know, punitive and not compassionate at all. Oh, but it's got uh, such a nice name like Hope. Yeah, it doesn't sound particularly hopeful to me. <laughs> um, but uh, I think something that, that people often forget um, is, well, uh, there, there are a few, few different issues uh, at play here. Um, one is that a lot of drug use uh, stems from trauma. Um, and a lot of the people that are dealing drugs are using drugs. Um, and it's, you know, like I said before, when people are kind of backed into a corner uh, when it comes to their usage and, you know, how they're going to uh, get their next fix, um, sometimes that means, you know, dealing the drugs that you're using. Um, and, you know, not all drug dealers are drug users. That's not, you know, there's a wide swath of people I'm sure that are using drugs, but um, I don't really think that incarcerating people is uh, is really the answer there. there. I think there are a lot of underlying issues um, that we could probably probably tackle tackle before we start we start throwing people in jail. I think one of the uh, I don't misconceptions of of outreach or harm reduction work is that it's dangerous to the people who are doing it, and so. I thought that maybe you could say something. I mean, it, is what you do dangerous? Do you feel like you're in danger when you're doing it? That's a really good question. Um, I don't personally feel like I am in danger. Um, I don't do it alone, and I don't, you know, generally speaking, I'm not, you know, going into into sort of enclosed spaces or anything like that. I mean, my the bulk of my outreach is done in uh, Kennedy Plaza, and in Burnside Park, um, you know, with a lot of people and a lot of open spaces, and it's just kind of a, a sort of a hub for for people. Um, I mean, I think that there are a lot of things that are dangerous, um, and I think that people generally are maybe not entirely predictable. Um, but the experiences that I've had um, with the people who are receiving my services, for the most part, have been very positive. Um, I mean, you meet all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances, and some of them are utilizing substances when you're speaking with them, and sometimes they're not. And, you know, there's you, you really get, it kind of runs the gamut there. Um, the only time that people that I've ever felt not even unsafe. It's that's that's a stretch to say that I've ever felt unsafe. But the only time I've ever felt like people were were angry is that people tend to get um, a little emotional when it comes to the types of services that I do provide. I think um, a lot of people think that I am contributing to um, drug usage, and uh, I had one woman accuse me of contributing to overdose deaths. Um, yep. for, for distributing needles. And uh, as we walked away, she like spit at me, which was not- This was before thing. COVID, right? Or was it? This, oh yeah, this was, no, this was well before COVID. Um, <laughs> but um, I mean, I get it. I think, you know, people are tired of, you know, seeing people 
die and I'm, I'm tired of seeing people die too. And um, I think that all that anger definitely came from a, a you know, a place of pain. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't, I mean, I, I don't ever really feel like I'm, I'm in danger. It's not to say that it can't be dangerous. Um, there are always, you know, situations that you go into um, in, in different kinds of outreach um, where you don't really know what you're going to come across. But I think the sort of uh, important thing is to, you know, speak to people as if they are not dangerous and if, as if you are not afraid of them um, and, you know, develop a rapport and develop a relationship um, with your community. And then, you know, people kind of look out for you. Uh, I have a few more questions. I have answers, Evan. I love that. Um, so I, I mean, I know your background a little bit, but can you tell the listeners kind of what your training is or what uh drew you to this i also want to ask you have you considered expanding and what would yeah what would that take what would go into that and then the sure third um, qu- wait. so i have i have um a diverse background i suppose i went to school uh, i went to leslie university in cambridge uh for um secondary education then english and i was dead set on being an english teacher um i got through school and realized that's not what I wanted to do. Um, I did childcare for a little bit. Um, and most recently I ended up, um, working, uh, in hospital administration and cardiac surgery, uh, up in, in Boston, um, where I learned a lot. Um, I actually was really lucky to have, uh, colleagues who were very open to helping me learn. Um, and interestingly enough, I sort of saw this different side of, um, you know, the drug epidemic, if you will. Um, I think a lot of people talk about, you know, rightfully so, they talk about overdose deaths. Um, but there's this whole other side of, you know, using injectable drugs in um, an unsafe way uh, that results in really terrible cardiac issues, um, just like infections in your blood and, mm-hmm. you know, things moving into your into your heart valves and, you know, vegetation's growing and essentially your heart just kind of turns to wet toilet paper and, you know, we would get these young, young patients in, um, and, you know, they're so sick and, um, you can't do heart surgery on someone if they are actively using IV drugs. And, you know, it it was so terrible to have to turn, turn people away. Um, and then, you know, it was even more painful when, when people would get off drugs and, you know, we would operate on them, not we, I was not doing any of the operating. Um, but you know, the team would, would operate on them. And then, you know, of course, after you have a major surgery like that, you're on painkillers. Um, and then sometimes people will just go back out and, you know, go back into old habits and come back six months later with another infection, which is, you know, disheartening. Um, and also just kind of sad to, to see people who, you know, so desperately want to get clean and, and, and are having trouble with that. Sure. Um, I recently left my job uh, to go back to school uh, for nursing. Um, And I think that my work in harm reduction uh, will really inform the way that I approach nursing. Um, And I hope that my skills in nursing will really, will really help me uh, with outreach in the way that I, the way that I approach outreach. What? can people do to help you um they can send me money money um, how do we do that, that is 
that's definitely the number one way you can help me is to send me money. What's the um, money? Be, be extra transparent but, here. What's the money what's for? That? If you can be extra transparent, that's very helpful. If people send you money, what's the money going to be for? Oh, yeah. So definitely. So I usually say when, when people ask me, you know, how they can help kind of like materialistically, it's either um, I have an Amazon wish list. Um, but when people send me money, um, I buy all sorts of things, um, usually things that I'm kind of missing off of the wish list. Um, you know, like right now, um, the seasons are changing and I need better socks and I need more gloves. Gloves tend to be pretty expensive and people don't really donate them. Um, so those are those are things that I buy. Um, I recently uh, got a donation and I bought myself another wagon um, so my volunteers don't have to carry around big totes all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I buy syringes. Um, I buy uh, things for my kits, uh, you know, whether that be sterile water. Um, I buy fentanyl testing strips. Um, I buy uh, glass uh, or Pyrex pipes for um, smoking either crack cocaine or meth. Um, what else? I mean, I buy all kinds of, <laughs> I have a lot of supplies. Sure. Um, I, I do my best though, to, to be pretty transparent and I'll, you know, I'll let people know kind of what I'm purchasing, especially when I'm making like larger purchases. I recently did a, um, a tent drive and people give me money for the tent drive. And, you know, I say, Hey, look, I spent, you know, this $80 on this, you know, six person tent, like, you know, so, um, I do my best to be transparent. So if we posted on our Instagram links to your Instagram or whatever, would that be the best way for our listeners to uh, help you out, donate? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I know times are tough um, and, uh, and not everybody has, has funds to give. So even just, even just engaging with, with posts and, you know, even just kind of like listening to what I have to say, um, you know, sometimes I'll hop up on a soapbox and uh, start talking about stuff. Um, and you know, outside of the the sort of physical work that I do, you know, when I'm when I'm handing out supplies or, or handing out food, um, you know, I, I like to I'd like to think that that people uh, in my life and people in my community who maybe hadn't thought about harm reduction um, or maybe didn't really consider people who are unhoused, you know, to be Part of their community i hope that i hope that you know just the work that i do and and being vocal about it helps people kind of rethink those things and puts new ideas in their head and you know leads people down a more compassionate path so <laughs> yeah i hope so too compassion kitchen well thank you so much caroline for joining us uh do you want to welcome thank you so much for having me do you want to shout out or say your um how to contact you or anything before we, yeah, before we um, end this. I am Compassion Kitchen underscore PVD um, on Instagram, um, and all of my contact info is on there. Um, I did just get myself an email address, so I'm definitely coming up in the world. I didn't have one of those for a while. Um, and my Venmo is also linked there, as well as my Amazon wish list. So if you want to help, you could do that. If not, just, you know, give her a look, give her a follow. I'm happy to have you. Do the right thing. And we are Evan, Andy, and Alex of the PLR Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. And that's the show. Thanks, Thanks Caroline. I've said a lot of stupid stuff, and I love to hear it in return.